Heavenly Father, we come and ask for your grace to be extended to us this morning, that you would send the Holy Spirit to us and fill us with him so that we would gain understanding from your word and hate every wrong path. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of 2 Samuel, and I've been giving you a bit of an overview as to Israelite history that brings us to this point. Someone did say to me last week, I think you can stop with that now, Joel. Uh, I will give it one more time, and if people say, a few others say you can stop with it, I will stop. Uh, but if some say, yes, we kind of like the overview of Israelite history, uh, then I'll continue. If just one person says that, then I'll continue. Although we've only probably got a few more weeks left in uh, 2 Samuel uh, before we'll jump to Matthew's Gospel. Uh, but where is this in Israelite history? Uh, for you who do not know uh, Israelite history as well as uh, some of others here this morning, well, of course, Adam and Eve, you know, you've got them at the beginning of all of creation. Uh, from them you get Abraham. From Abraham you get the 12 tribes of Israel and they end up in Egypt. They're brought out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses and then enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. There's a series of judges that look after them and that's, they're all count, recounted for us in the book of Judges. And then Samuel is the last of those judges and we meet him at the beginning of 1 Samuel uh, where he is born to his mother Hannah. And he then anoints Saul as king over Israel, the first king of Israel. Before that, they just had judges. Saul is the first king of Israel. But then Saul continues to not obey God. And so God then anoints David through the prophet Samuel as king of Israel. And so for a time there, you've got two kings, essentially. Uh, you've got the king who is over all of Israel, which is Saul. And then David, who has been anointed as king by God, and Saul, who is rejected by God, and so you've got these two kings essentially there. One is not acknowledged except uh, by a band of men that he has, and then another king who is really out to kill David as much as he possibly can. Saul then dies in battle with the Philistines, and his son Ishbosheth is put on the throne by a man called Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army and also a relative of the house of Saul. And so for a time, you've got Ishbosheth uh, reigning over the land of Israel, and you've got David, who has actually ascended the throne of the tribe of Judah. There's a civil war going on, and that's what we've been looking at as we've been studying the book of 2 Samuel together. This civil war between the house of David and the house of Saul. Uh, the house of Saul led by Ishbosheth and Abner, and the house of David led by David, of course, and uh, his commander, who is Joab. And we've started to see that the, the unravelling of this civil war has begun, that peace is starting to come. We've seen that Abner is no longer happy with Ishbosheth as his king, and so he is going to start making moves uh, to bring the kingdom of Israel under the leadership of David. And so this is how we'll see that David ascends the throne. And this is all very important because, as we understand from the New Testament, that eventually, from David's line, we get the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we see the removal of God's, king, uh, God's initial king of Saul and replacement with David, he's actually replacing it with a house that will endure for all of eternity. And there's promises made about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in particular, but also all through the rest of Scripture and pointing to the house of, of uh, David as, the, as fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not something that is, has no relevance for us today. David's throne is of vital importance to us if we worship King Jesus. Now, how then is this civil war going to be ended? Well, it's ended by Abner in particular, as we'll see, repenting to David. What does the word repentance mean? Well, repentance means a changing of mind. It's a change of mind. And that's what we see with Abner. Initially, his mind was set that Ishbosheth would be king. And now he's changed his mind 
and thinks that David would be king. Now, how do we know that Abner has changed his mind? How do we know that he is repentant of his previous view? Well, he turns towards David's throne and meets with David. We see that, uh, we saw that uh, previously in earlier part of chapter 3, that he went, uh, he sent messengers in verse 12 on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. And then now he has actually come. He's not just sent messengers, he's actually come to see David in the passage that we're looking at this morning. And we see that in verse, uh, verse 20. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. How do we know that Abner is repentant? Well, he's come to meet with David. If he's turned, if he's changed his mind, then he would actually meet with the person that he's changed his mind about. And what does he do in his repentance? He confesses that David is king. We see this in verse 21. Then Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my Lord, the king. Part of his repentance is that he comes to meet with Jesus, uh, sorry, meet with David, and that he then confesses that David is his king. And what else shows his repentance? Well, there's a submission. There's a submission to David's desires. And we see that in verse 21. Then Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king so they may make a compact with you and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. What is Abner doing there in his repentance? He is acknowledging that David is king and therefore if David is king, David calls the shots in Abner's life. There is a complete submission to David now that David can have all that his heart desires in relation to the people of Israel, and of course that includes Abner. And what does David do in response to the repentance of Abner? Well, we read that he makes a feast for Abner and his men. In verse 21, it says, Then Abner said to David, uh, sorry, in verse 20, When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Now, why would David give a feast for these men? Why would he give a feast for Abner? Well, a feast can be a sign of an agreement, a treaty that has been performed between two parties. And we know that an agreement has been formed, or a covenant is the word uh, that we understand that the scriptures love to use, for the relationship that now happens between Abner and David. And that's actually been a word that's popped up a few times, even in this uh, passage today, but also previously in verse 12 of chapter 3, we read, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement. And that word literally in Hebrew is covenant. Make a covenant with me. And then in verse 13, where we read about David's response, good, said David, I will make an agreement or covenant with you. And then down in verse 21, same word is used again. Sadly, the NIV uh, changes the, even the word from agreement to compact. We see in verse 21, then Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my Lord the King so they may make a compact with you and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. Same Hebrew word three times there in the passage. And it's often translated as covenant. And if you've got another translation there before you, it probably has the word covenant instead. What has happened between Abner and David? A covenant has been formed, a promise has been made, an agreement, a treaty has been made. And what do you do in response to such a compact, an agreement, a covenant? Well, there's an old custom of having a feast. When you make an agreement between two parties who are particularly warring with one another, to show that you're in agreement with one another, you have a meal together. 
And this is a, quite an old custom, and you can even see it given back in the book of Genesis. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 26, where we see one of the great patriarchs, Isaac, and he had an enemy called Abimelech. Chapter 26 of Genesis, first book of the Bible, page uh, 25, if you have a church Bible. And we'll look at verse 26. So chapter 26, verse 26, page 25 of your church Bibles. It says, Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him, that's Isaac from Gerar, with Ahurazath, his personal advisor, and Fikol, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, Why are you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? So clearly they're not friends. And Isaac's like, Why are you here now? What's verse 28 say? They answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said there ought to be a sworn agreement, covenant, between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will not do us no harm, just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. Very old custom, going right back to the patriarchs. This is several hundred years before what we see here with David. Going right back to the patriarchs, that when you make an agreement with a hostile party, one of the ways that you show that you're in agreement now is by the way that you have a feast together. And feasts are still an important part of our society today as well. We'll have official feasts, official meals to show agreements between parties. And that can be, of course, with the heads of state of different nations as they come together and they have a meal together. It's quite a big deal for certain parties that were previously, certain heads of nations that were previously hostile to one another. If they sit down and have a meal together, it's a very important sign. And even in, at lower levels of society, for us who are not heads of state and at the upper echelons, uh, we still recognise that feasts are important as well and show a sign of friendship, of agreement with people. Even the fact that you have wedding receptions, you have this meal after a covenant has been formed between two parties, they then have a meal together and they invite the community to have that meal with them, recognising the covenant that has been made. And sometimes it's a bit of a thing whether, am I going to get invited to the reception or not? How close a friend am I to the bride and groom? I may be welcome to come to the chapel and see them form the covenant, but will I be invited back to the feast? Only the real friends get invited back to the feast, don't they? And so it's a sign of even a privilege if you get to go and uh, be a part of the feasting that happens after a covenant has been formed. And so that's what's happening here in 2 Samuel. We see David and Abner, previously hostile to one another, now eating together. And it sends a wonderful signal to the rest of Israel that there is now a covenant, an agreement made between these two parties. And what then happens at the end of the feast? David sends Abner away in peace. We saw that with Isaac and Abimelech. It's actually mentioned there in the text as well. They went away in peace. Abimelech left in peace. And it's here emphasised again and again in the text. Actually, three times. Look with me at the end of verse 21. After they've had their feast and Abner's given his speech, we read, So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And then in verse 22, Just then David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron, because David had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner son of Ner had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. Very clear emphasis here that there is peace now 
between these two warring parties, and one can leave in peace. But what doesn't David do at this point? David doesn't put his enemy to death. It's quite astounding, really, what we read here, because Abner has been focusing all his efforts on trying to get David off his throne. He's come with war to David's camp before. And David responds when he comes in repentance with mercy rather than death, whereas it would have been the natural reaction to put him to death. How do we know? Well, Joab's reaction tells us what David's reaction should have been if he was following his natural urges. What does Joab, the commander of David's army, do? He gets quite upset and then secretly calls Abner back and then treacherously puts him to death, pulls him to one side privately, doesn't say, we've got to have a duel. He gives him the impression that we're still friends, that we're friends too, just as David's friends, and puts him to death in verse 27. And if we reflect upon our natural response towards enemies, we would have the same reaction. When an enemy comes towards us, we don't want to show mercy to them, particularly if they've done something horrible to us. And we certainly don't want to eat with the person. We want to keep them at a distance or make them suffer in some way. But David doesn't kill Abner. What does he do? He shows mercy to Abner instead. So what can we see in this passage? Well, we can see many things. But I think what, we, what jumped out at me this week as I was studying this passage is the great picture of the gospel. The great picture of the good news is reflected in a shadow of what we see happening here between David and Abner. What is the good news of Jesus Christ? What is the gospel? It is that enemies of Jesus Christ can now be his friends. Those who are previously fighting with Jesus Christ can become his friends. Why is humanity an enemy of Christ Jesus? Why are humans enemies of Christ Jesus? Well, it's because we have all carried out murderous attacks upon Jesus Christ by our sin. That's what our sin is. It's a murderous attack upon Christ, that we don't want him as king of our lives. Instead, we want to be king of our lives and we want rid of him. Now, we may not think that necessarily by the way that we, when we sin, we haven't got that all going on in the back of our mind, but that's the truth. We are enemies of God by our sin. We are murderously attacking Jesus and his kingdom. We're all guilty of treason, just like Abner was guilty of treason by attacking God's anointed king, David. And so therefore, what do we all deserve? Like Abner, we deserve death. I mean, in one sense, Job was right to put Abner to death. He deserved it. He had attacked God's anointed king and his army. And we deserve the same as well. We deserve death for death. If we try to put someone to death, if we try to take Jesus off his throne and put him to death, then we deserve death as well. We have committed treason, treason, and therefore we deserve to be punished accordingly with death. But what does Jesus do to those who are repentant, to those who change their mind about their murderous attacks upon Christ Jesus? What does he do? He shows them mercy. Now, how can Jesus be just and merciful? If we have attacked the living God, if we attacked Jesus Christ and tried to rip him off his throne, what, in what understanding can we have that he would show us mercy, that we would experience his mercy whilst also him being just? We have to understand that if we have attacked God, if we have attacked Jesus Christ, then we deserve punishment. That is justice. And that is part of the problem here as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 3. Why is Joab so upset? He wants justice. 
How can David show mercy to Abner? He should be experiencing justice, and justice requires death. So then how can Jesus just extend mercy to us? If we turn to him, okay, good, but he needs to serve justice to us. How can the king of kings give mercy whilst also being a just king? David couldn't do it. He was happy to show mercy to Abner, but he couldn't show justice to Abner. Joab tried, but Joab didn't want to show mercy. How does Jesus resolve that tension? Being a merciful king, but also a just king, was by his death. Jesus, the king of kings, died the death that his people deserve, his friends deserve, so that they could stop being his enemies and instead be his friends that he could show mercy to them, but also justice because he has paid the penalty. He has died the death that his people deserve. And so he is at the same time both merciful and just. A tension that David couldn't pull off and Joab couldn't pull off, but Jesus did. By his death, he is able to extend mercy, but also show justice. So then how can we be friends of Jesus? How can we be friends of Jesus? How can we no longer be enemies of Jesus and that the civil war would be over, just as like the civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David would be over? How can it happen? Well, we have to ask, have we repented? Have we repented? That's how it ended for Abner. He repented. He changed his mind about David. And how did he do that? Well, he turned to David, didn't he? And went and saw him. And that's what we need to do with Jesus as well. We need to meet with Jesus. We need to go to him and speak to him in prayer. And what do we say to Jesus? Well, what did Abner say to David? Well, he confessed that David was his Lord, the king. And that's what we need to do with Jesus as well. Previously, we'd rejected Jesus. We'd said he's not our king. Now, if we are repentant, we come to Jesus in prayer and we say, you are my Lord, the king. And then what do we do? What did Abner do with David? He said, you can rule over all that your heart desires. And that's what we need to do with the Lord Jesus as well. We need to say, if we're repentant of our sins, we need to come to him and say, you can rule over all that your heart desires. Whatever you want me to do, whatever part of my life you want something to happen in, it is yours to have. And that is someone who is repentant, who has changed their mind about Jesus Christ. They've come to him, they've confessed that he is their Lord, the King, and they have given him all that his heart desires. But how can we know that Jesus has forgiven us? We come to him in repentance, but how do we know that we really are his friends? Particularly if we are plagued by sins that we know were grievous and horrible and were completely hostile towards Jesus Christ. Someone was even asking me last week about blaspheming the Holy Spirit and how that Jesus says that's the unforgivable sin. Now, you may have struggled with something like that in the back of your mind, like, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit and I cannot be forgiven? Have I blasphemed God or Jesus in some way? The things I used to say, I may have even actively told people not to believe in Christ Jesus. How do I know he's now forgiven me when I was such an enemy of his? How can I know? Yes, I've changed my mind. I've come to him in prayer. I've said, you're my Lord, the King. I've said, you can rule over me. Do whatever your heart desires, Lord Jesus. But how do I know he accepts me as his friend? 
Well, how did Abner know that David accepted him as his friend? Well, it was by an agreement was formed, a compact, a covenant was formed. And that's what the Lord Jesus has done with us as well. He has declared that those who come to him are repentant and trusting in him are his. We read in Romans chapter 10, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, but what does it say? What does the word say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. We are proclaiming that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the word of God that is declared by Paul and to you today. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. It's a wonderful truth that people who trust in Jesus Christ and come to him and say, be my friend, be my king, he will never put them to shame and say, away from me. How do we know that Jesus accepts us? He has declared it is so. If we come to him in true repentance, he declares it. He's made an agreement. He's made a covenant with his people and declared it in the scriptures. But how else did David know, uh, Abner know that David accepted him? What did David do? He ate with Abner. He made a covenant with him and he ate with Abner. He feasted with him. And it's the same with God. It's the same with Jesus Christ. Really? Yes, God has always welcomed his people to come and eat with him. How do we know? Well, we can see examples in the Old Testament. We can look at the elders of Israel. Turn back with me to page 78 of your Bibles, to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24, a tremendous narrative about an incident that happened with the lives of the elders of Israel. So this is when the, um, Moses has been receiving the covenant uh, at, the Mount of, at Mount Sinai. They've left Egypt. Uh, they're at Mount Sinai receiving uh, the Lord's commands. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 24, chapter 24 of Exodus, page 78, it opens with, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, an agreement that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Once again, we see a declare, declaration of a covenant, a promise, an agreement, a compact made with the people of God. And then we read in verse 9, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. I'm not going to get into what it means that they saw the Lord, but what I want you to understand is that they ate and drank. They ate and drank in the presence of the Lord. God provided a feast for them in light of his covenant, his agreement with them, and he did not raise his hand against them. Even though they had sinned against him, 
in their lives, he did not raise a hand against them. But you may say, okay, that's an example of the elders eating with God. But does God really feast with his people? Yes, by his fellowship offerings. The fellowship offerings that people would come, there's different offerings, you can read about them in Leviticus, that people would come and make, but there was a fellowship offering. We see that even here in this text, a fellowship offering. And what was part of the role of the person who offered a fellowship offering to God? They would actually eat some of the offering. Other offerings would be burnt up and not eaten at all or eaten by the priest, but the fellowship offering, the person offering that could eat some of it. It was an offering to God, it was God's, but then he gave some back for eating of the people. He wanted them to feast in his presence and show that they're in agreement with him, in covenant with him. But you may say, but that's the Old Testament. What about now? Does Jesus eat with his people now to show his agreement, that he is in covenant with them, that they are his friends? The answer has to be yes. As we look at the New Testament, what do we see? Well, he welcomes us to the great wedding supper of the Lamb. That's what we read in Revelation chapter 19 before. We read about this wedding supper of the Lamb. But you may say, okay, but I'm really struggling. I want to know now whether Jesus accepts me as his friend and does he eat with me now? That's the future. There's this wedding supper that is coming in heaven. Yes, I look forward to being at that. But how do I know now that I am his friend? Well, we can know he's our friend now and not our enemy. How? It's at the Lord's table. Why did Jesus introduce the Lord's table, the the, the supper, the Lord's supper? It was so we would commune with him. So we would commune with him. What do we see at the first Lord's Supper, at the Passover that he celebrates with his disciples just before his death? We see him communing with his disciples in friendship. He's leaning back with them. He's dipping bread and passing it to them. There's a real friendship as you read the narratives about the Lord's Supper. They're not his enemies, although one is, but the But the general rule there is that he is showing friendship to them. And even to Judas, he is showing some friendship by having him there, even as he is an enemy of God. And so what's going on at communion still today? We're communing with Christ Jesus by his spirit. We're actually having communion with him, a relationship with him, showing that he is no longer our enemy, but our friend. You may say, but how can I know that Christ accepts me at the table? When I come to the Lord's Supper, how does he give me assurance that I am one of his? Well, he does it by his body that is here on earth. Jesus is not with us at this moment. One day we look forward to being with him. But he is not with us at this moment physically, but he's with us spiritually. How? By his people. What are the ch- what's the church called? It's called the body of Christ. And so when you meet with his people, you're meeting with the body of Christ. And so as the body of Christ administers the Lord's Supper, what are they doing to you as they welcome you to the Lord's table? They're giving you that stamp, that seal, that you are his friend as they recognize you coming and eating and drinking with them. They're assuring you that you belong to him. And this is why when the Lord's Supper is administered, it should be administered as a church, collectively together, and with strict warnings given as to who is welcome to take part. It should not just be delivered frivolously amongst the people that happened to be there that day. No, because it's meant to be a stamp, a seal, that you belong to God, you belong to Christ, you are one of his friends, 
and so therefore it should be delivered in an appropriate manner with all the appropriate warnings given. And what are the warnings that should be given? Well, it should be that this is only for those who are repentant and trusting in Christ Jesus, those who have changed their mind about Jesus and no longer see him as an enemy but see him as a friend. And so if you're not repentant, then the church should be upfront about that and tell you that you're not welcome to take part, that this is not a meal for you. It's only for those who are repentant. Now, that's why some churches even have closed communion, where you can only take part if you're a member of the church. And so in very large churches, you would actually get a ticket and you'd have to show that to the people as they're coming around administering it and show that you are a member in good standing, that you've been checked out by the elders of the church and by the church as a whole, and that you're welcome to take part. At other churches, they may not have particularly closed communion, but I've heard of other churches where there'll be a time between the warnings that are given and then there's a bit of a break and any visitors that are present and there's opportunity also for members to make themselves known to the elders and make sure that everybody who's going to take part that day is a believer. Now, I don't think that closed communion is right. I've wrestled with this at different points in my life. Uh, I believe in what is what we call close communion. We keep it close, but we don't shut it off altogether from those who are here on a Sunday morning. What we do instead is we give very clear teachings about who should eat, and the warnings are given of the judgment that will come upon people who eat and drink and are not supposed to eat and drink at the Lord's table. And so when communion is served rightly by the body of Christ, with the appropriate warnings of the judgment that will come on those who eat and drink who are unrepentant, then those who are repentant can come and have that assurance that they are friends of Christ. Despite their hostility in the past, they are now friends of Christ. So are you a friend of King Jesus? Are you a friend of King Jesus? How do you know? Have you repented of your sin? Like Abner, have you turned to Christ? like he turned to David? Have you confessed Christ as your Lord and King? Have you surrendered your life to him in repentance? If you have, then you are one of Christ's friends. And how can you know that? Well, you can know that by his agreement that he has made. He has covenanted with you. He declares it in his word that you are his friends now with passages like Romans 10. And how else can you know? Well, have you feasted in this world with Christ's body? Have you come to a Lord's table with his people? Then you have that assurance from Christ's body that you belong to him, that you are a friend of his. And if you know that, if you know your repentance, you know the agreement that Christ has made, and you have feasted with him, then what can you do? You can go in peace. That's what we saw with Abner. He left David in peace. That's what we saw with Abimelech. He left Isaac in peace. And that's what we can do with Jesus. We may come in trembling, but as he feasts with us and reminds us of his agreement, his compact, his covenant with us, we can go in peace, knowing that we don't have to fear the king because we are the king's friend. And he has welcomed us to eat and drink with him. Now, if that isn't you, If you've never repented of your sins, you've never trusted in his covenant that he has made, the promises he has made, and you've never surrendered your life to him, then the wedding invitation still stands for you.
to come to the wedding supper of the Lamb. King Jesus tells a parable for you in Matthew chapter 22. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, page 979 if you have a church Bible. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and we'll read from verse 1. Page 979. Matthew chapter 22, reading from verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Jesus invites you this morning to come and be his friend. If you've never repented of your sins before, repent now. Accept the wedding clothes that he gives, which is the righteousness of himself, so that you're holy before him, so that you will not be thrown out of the wedding banquet. Come to him now, repent of your sins, and trust in him. Accept the king's invitation. Receive his mercy. It's so wonderful he can show mercy to us. He doesn't have to show us blunt justice. Because of his death at the cross, he can extend mercy, and he extends that to you this morning if you will receive it. Be Christ's friend. By the Spirit, put on those clean clothes, and then look forward to joyfully feasting with him. Feasting with him with his people here on earth, but of course, the great wedding supper of the Lamb that is yet to come, where we will feast with him in person. No longer by his Spirit, but with him in person. It'll be so wonderful. I shouldn't say no longer by his spirit. Of course, his spirit will still be working in us, but you get what I mean. We'll see him face to face. We'll be with him physically. If you're repentant this morning, you can share that hope too and rejoice in it. Let's come to Jesus in prayer. Let's come to him now. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the king who is merciful to murderers, but also just because you gave your life to pay for our murderous attacks upon yourself so we could be with you eternally. We thank you for granting repentance to many of us so that we can feast with you now, with your body, the church, and we can also feast with you one day in heaven. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is not repentant of their sins, is still murderously attacking you with their life, oh Lord, we pray that you would grant them repentance now so they can know the joy and the peace that comes through you, to them, now and always. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.